Uh, today we're going to be in James chapter 1. You probably couldn't imagine there'd be so many sermons coming out of one chapter in the Bible, but we're there again today, James chapter 1. We're going to move down in a chapter a little ways. So when you find that in your text, please stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 18. Today I gave the sermon a title called uh, Making Sure. You know, uh, I hope that you are sure about your salvation. I hope you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're saved. But I would venture to say that there are some in here who aren't sure. You, you're not positive, okay? And today I want you to hear what God says. I want you to apply it to your life so that you can walk out of these doors assured of where you're going, assured of your salvation. And so let's read together and then we'll get into it. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Verse 21, Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray again. Lord, take your word today and implant that in every heart in this room and those who are listening at home. And I pray today, today, Father, that you're glorified. I pray you're lifted high and above. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for changing my life. Help me to live that life now that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there's a, you may be seated. Thank you. There's a current myth going around the church, and it has been for the last, I'd say, several decades. It's been a while, but here's the, the myth, that you can make a decision for Jesus Christ, and then it might or it might not change your life. You can make a decision for Jesus Christ, and it might or it might not change your life. Let me give you an example. Let's say that a child, teenager, goes to camp, church camp, boy or a girl, either one. And while they're at church camp, uh, they are confronted with the Word, of course. That's what you do at church camp. You get confronted with the Word, and in that confrontation, uh, they feel the necessity to make a decision for Christ. And they go down to the front at church camp, and they are discipled, they are prayed over, they might even give them a Bible. They come home from church camp and tell their folks, and the folks say, well, you, you need to be baptized, or they tell the pastor at the church, you need to be baptized, so they get baptized. And as they accomplish that, they grow a little bit older, and the church kind of now becomes boring to this teenager, girl or boy. In fact, the church is not attractive. They don't really want to go anymore. 
but their parents make them go because that's what they do. It's a habit. So they go, but as they get older and old enough to leave the home, they stop going to church. They stop reading their Bible. They stop desiring to walk with God. They stop all of the religious activities in their life. But their parents say they were saved because they made a decision at church camp. Now that, by the silence in this room, I can tell that's affecting us. Because it probably is some of you. That was certainly my life story. And you might know someone in that state. The question is not to ask, are they saved or not saved? The question to ask, is there evidence of the new life that Jesus Christ brings at salvation? Is there evidence, right? This is what James is is addressing this morning. The evidence that we see in this new life that is given to us, that is imparted to us. Look in verse 18. In the exercise of His, who's His? God. In the exercise of God's will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. So that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. God imparts life to us gives us that life at salvation, and then we walk in it. Amen? So the question to ask about someone like that and yourself is not, am I saved or am I not saved? Where's the evidence of the new life that God has given to us? That's the question to ask. That's what I want to address this morning. When that person is given this new life, their desires change. When that person is given this new life, they are no longer alienated from God. God's not a stranger to them. Now they're reconciled with God, and they know that. And they understand that reconciliation. They are not uh, an enemy of God any longer, even though they never considered themselves an enemy of God. The Bible says that we were before we became Christian. We were an enemy, but... Now they reconcile or understand that they are a friend of God with the new life that is given to them. This picture is no better portrayed than by Jesus and His parable of the sower and the seed. You know that in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says the sower went out to sow seed and some of it fell uh, on the road. And it says the birds came and ate it, and it did not sprout. The, some of the seed fell into the rocky soil next to the side of the road. And when Jesus explained the parable, He said, This is the person that received the word with joy. What does that mean? When He heard it, He believed it, and He received it with a smile on His face. It made him happy that God had spoken to him. But in the parable, it says, But when affliction and persecution came, because he had no root in himself, he fell away. The third soil that we see is the soil mixed with weeds. And in that soil, Jesus said that, The seed fell and it grew up with the weeds, but the weeds choked 
out the word. In the last soil was the good cultivated soil. What's the difference in all of those soils? One difference. Only one of them produced fruit. Only one. Not this road, not the rocky soil by the road, not the soil with the weeds, but the good soil was the only soil that produced fruit. That is the evidence of the new life. When you start producing fruit in your life for the kingdom of God. Jesus was adamant about it. James is just as much. Now, here's the difference. So let me, let me read you a scripture from Ezekiel when God speaks about the future from the Old Testament. He says this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now that teenager we described earlier who has now drifted off and away, is he walking in the ordinances of God? Of course not. Is he following the ways of God? Is he listening to the will of God? Is he exhibiting the Spirit of God? Is he understanding the statutes and commandments of God? Of course they're not. Why? Because they're not saved. Because they're not Christian. And we say, oh, well, he's in a wilderness experience. No. Listen to me. That is the myth that has been floating around in the church for too long. And somehow that's got to be done away with. We don't read about those type of experiences in the New Testament. When they got saved, they were saved. Amen. And they lived it. And they died with it. They didn't wander off in the wilderness somewhere and come back later. The evidence of the new life is important. Even you as a longtime church member of this church, if you're not sure of your salvation, that is a sign to you. That is a signal that God's trying to reach you. He wants you to be sure. There is no question about it. When God saves you, you know it. Amen. You don't wonder and you don't have to doubt about it. These changes of this new life are evident and inherent from the new heart that God gives the individual when they are saved. Now, this is not an effortless moment for a Christian. It takes effort. It takes time, it takes energy to cultivate that heart. If that was not the case, if it was just God saved me and I sat on the pew and that's all I need to do until He comes and takes me home. If that was the case, why is there so much Scripture in the New Testament about spiritual growth? About you and I growing and putting forth perseverance and endurance and causing all of those things and allowing them to happen and the working out the cause of those things. I'll tell you why. Because it's not effortless. It takes effort. A cultivated heart, somebody plowed that field. Somebody plowed that. That's the people that spoke to you about Christ before you received Him. Somebody got busy on their tractor and they came to visit you and they plowed your heart with the Word of God. And the weeds and things started to lay over. 
right? Exposing the good soil. Now, that good soil has to be uh, watered, does it not? Somebody comes along and waters that seed that was planted in your heart. Somebody comes along and continues to cultivate and pull those weeds out of your life. That's you now. You begin to work that heart yourself, pulling those weeds out, refusing that temptation, fighting off the devil, resisting him, as James writes, and he'll flee from you. Right? Somebody has to protect that soil from the birds coming and eating that seed and carrying it off. That's you, brother. So it's not effortless salvation. We don't do anything to earn it. Don't, don't go out here and say, Brother Clay, saying we've got to work for our salvation. No. But as we receive that, there are some things that we do, and there are some evidence of that new life in us. And I want to bring those out of the Scripture this morning for you. It says in Psalm 78, the writer said this, And do not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart. Did you hear that? He said, don't be like them, that generation that did not prepare their heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So there is work involved in you and I cultivating our heart and making it receptive to God's Word. Okay? James tells us how to do this. I want you to notice this, and we didn't read all of these texts, but James mentions God's Word in verse 18, verse 21, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 25, where he calls it the law. So, context is king in in Bible interpretation. Amen? Context is king. So apparently the Word of God is important in this section of Scripture if context is king in interpreting the Bible. So God says it's important about my Word to receive that Word and to do that Word in the verses following our text. Making sure... That's what I want you to do today is make sure about yourself. If God brought us forth by His Word, then we must prepare our hearts to receive that Word. There's five indicators of a receptive heart in our text. Number one, a receptive heart opens the ears. Right? Look in verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear. Slow to speak and slow to anger. That seems out of place if I was trying to put that phrasing with relationship. Quick to hear you, slow to speak to you, and slow to get angry with you. That's out of place in the word context of the word. Context is king. He's not talking about quick to hear you, or you quick to hear me, he's saying be quick to hear the Word. Okay? Be quick to hear God's Word. Jesus, Paul's, I mean, uh, James is using this phrasing just like Jesus used the phrasing in the Gospels. He said this, take care how you listen. In another place, Jesus also said, he who has ears, let him hear. 
Okay, James is simply saying it a different way. Be quick to hear. Be quick to listen to God's Word. The first mark of a receptive heart is to listen to God. Jesus said this in John chapter 8. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Question mark. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Does God speak to you? Does God address you with word? Does He fill you up with word? Does He correct you with word? Does He guide you with His word? If if you're answering no to that, John chapter 8 says you don't know Him. The reason you don't hear Him is because you don't know Him. Make sure that you know Him. Make sure that you're hearing Him. This is what Jesus told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, it says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you are not hearing God and not receiving things from the Spirit of God, it's because you're a natural man still to this day. Even though you made a decision for Christ when you were a kid, You're not hearing God today. You're not following after Him. To hear God, to hear His Word, implies an eagerness to obey it. An eagerness to read it. An eagerness to listen to it. To memorize it. To understand it. All with a view to obeying it. This is not a book of information. This is a book of guidance. This is a book that directs us and points us in and steers us and helps us along the way. So today I want you to make sure about yourself. Examine yourself. Do you delight in God's Word? Remember the high school kid? He lost his delight. He lost his favor of God's Word. His desire for it, or her desire. And this is what we have to be careful. Examine ourselves. Do we delight in the Word? Do we long for the Word? A receptive heart opens the ears to God's Word of truth. The second thing is this. A receptive heart controls the tongue. Verse 19. Be slow, uh, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Remember, context is king. We're not talking about you talking to me or me talking to you. We're talking about, I remember when Gail got saved. Okay? I remember that to this day. And I went to pick her up and she come out of that place and she told me she met Jesus. And I said, oh my gosh, here we go with the Jesus stuff. Right? And we got home, and for that whole week, I was watching this new woman I was married to. I was the one that grew up in church. She never went when she was a kid. But now I'm seeing this godly woman that I'm living with. And then I knew what I needed to do because I had been in church. And I got on my knees in my bedroom at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I asked Jesus come into my life and save me 
and changed me. And if, I, if he could do for me what he's done for my wife, I want that. Amen. Guess what? He did. He saved me. He changed my life. And right then, I started boasting about all that I knew about the Scripture. <laughs> Boy, I was a Bible theologian overnight. Until James says, be quick to hear, but slow to speak. Amen. Be slow to speak about all that you think you know. Because all that you think you know is not all there is to know. Amen? Amen? So be careful. We are instructed in the Bible to be careful being a teacher, aren't we? Be, being a teacher of the Word because you're going to be held accountable to a higher degree than those students in your class that you're teaching. Be careful. Be slow to speak. Don't boast about the things that you know. Proverbs 17, 28 says this, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is counted intelligent. Okay? Be slow to speak about all the things you think you know about God's Word until you start to learn them for yourself, until you, st uh, until you start to mature yourself, until God calls you to speak. Be slow to speak. God gave us two ears that we cannot close, but one mouth that we can. Amen. Be quick to hear, but be slow to speak. Larry King, who just passed away recently, the television columnist, said this, I never learned anything while talking. Be slow to speak. James is not asking you to and forbidding you to ask questions. What does it have to do with, with God's Word being slow to speak uh, about God's Word? It is this, that he's asking us not to... Not to ask questions, but he's asking us to be quiet for a little while. Amen. Be silent for a moment. Let God do the speaking. Remember the verse, be still and know that I am God. Right? So we want to not be boasting and talking about all we know. We want to be quiet and listening to what God has to say. Here's what happens when the Word comes and tries to correct my life. I start making excuses. Or I start grumbling about it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever made an excuse? I know you have because it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Amen. And what did they do when confronted by God about the sin? They blamed the other guy. They made excuses for their sin. You and I do it. Maybe you're not doing it as much as you used to, but we still try to get away with it. James is saying, shh, when the Word confronts your life, Amen. submit to it, don't argue with it. Okay? When the words, when Eli, the priest in the Old Testament in the temple, and Anna, Hannah brought her little boy Samuel, he was born and she dedicated him to God and Samuel grew up in the house of God and God one night said, Samuel. Samuel got up, thought it was Eli, went in there. Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed, son. Go back to bed. Samuel, he gets up, runs in there to Eli and he says, I didn't call you. And so Eli figures out it's God calling him. 
So he tells Samuel, the next time you hear your name, I want you to say this, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Be slow to speak, quick to hear with God's Word. Amen? A receptive heart, number three, controls emotions. He says, be slow to anger. Well, this is not anger between you and me. This is anger when God's Word conflicts me. Convicts me or conflicts my life. It wants to change me and boy, I want to scream. Because I think what I'm doing is okay. I don't see it as a sin. But I'm learning that God's Word is calling it that. Let me give you an example that... that, that, uh, I have trouble with, okay? It's like this. When our state voted to, to make uh, marijuana, medical marijuana legal, I was under the impression that they were going to take the chemicals out of marijuana and put it in a pill or, or, a, or a fluid, like in oil or whatever. And, you know, I, I wasn't going to struggle with that. Of course, I voted no for it, but... What happened is that when the legislature in Oklahoma said that's what we're going to do, the public went, no, we want to smoke it. I said, wait a minute. They don't want the benefit from the marijuana plant. They just want to get stoned. And that's exactly what has happened. Amen? If you were interested in the medical advantages of it, You wouldn't care about smoking it necessarily because that is not beneficial to you. I found some things that I wanted to share with you. Smoking marijuana makes one physically dependent on it if, if they are a regular user. It causes irritability, restlessness, lack of sleep, and appetite. Marijuana will impair your brain, making it harder for you to focus, learn, and remember. It can cause inflammation and irritation in the lungs, which will cause breathing problems. It also increases one's risk of contracting respiratory diseases because it actually weakens the immune system. Marijuana weakens your heart by making it beat faster from an average of 50 to 70 at rest to an average of 70 to 120 while smoking marijuana. This results in an increased risk of heart issues. Pregnant women who smoke marijuana face the risk of giving birth to underweight and premature babies. Now I got all this off a website that's all about medical marijuana. But they wanted to be just in giving both sides. Here's some more side effects. Anxiety or paranoia, nausea and vomiting, excessive hunger, dry mouth, confusion, dizziness and fatigue, lack of interest in activities, social and recreational, relationship problems, because they put less effort into their friendships, family or romance. Signs of withdrawal symptoms are irritability, restlessness, sweating, tremors, and chills. Smoking marijuana develops an increased tolerance. What does that mean? It means the more you smoke, the more you got to smoke. Amen. Amen? 
The last thing, the inability to stop the use of or to break away from marijuana. So our state voted for medical marijuana, right? What does God's Word say? Don't tear down this temple. Don't tear down the temple of God. Amen. That's what I believe. That's what I stand for. I believe that's what God's Word stands for. When I read that, you know when I first learned that? I I was putting about two cans a day of dip in my mouth. All right? And then I got convicted one night at church. I sat on the front row. The preacher's preaching about, about vices. Smoking, drinking, all that kind of stuff. And boy, I'm amening him left and right. And I forgot that I'd left my Copenhagen in my front pocket. And there I am shouting, yeah, brother, get him, get him, preacher, get him. And I reached up there, uh-oh. <laughs> so I got out, drove home about three miles to the house, chunked that can out the window. Then God got onto me for littering. I had to go back and find it. But my point is this that the preacher was preaching about this being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are not to destroy it or to treat it badly or harshly. And so when God's Word confronts that, what happens to you? Do you become angry with Him? Do you become defensive with Him? A receptive heart stops fighting God and it begins to submit to God. Why should I submit to God with my anger? Verse 20 tells me, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. What happens when anger is opposed to submission? Anger destroys families. Anger destroys churches. Anger distances people in relationships. Anger destroys children. Anger never causes any good. Jesus associated anger with the root of murder. Amen? Amen. God said to Cain after he killed his brother in Genesis, here's what he said, Why are you angry? You see what anger does? Paul wrote to us that anger gives the devil a foothold in our life, and yet anger is tolerated across this great land in homes and churches Far and wide, fathers who bully their children and leaders of churches who bully their way through, and we then we want to label it righteous anger. And James says, the righteous anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Or he says that the anger of man does not achieve righteousness. In fact, Paul lists this anger as a deed of the flesh. Let me read it to you here. Galatians 5, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Amen. Wow, I, I didn't really think being angry was that big of a deal. But according to the Word, it is a great big deal. It says... If you're an angry person, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
You know, it's pretty plain to all of us, if you can't go a week without a drink, then you need to face the reality that you're an alcoholic. If you can't go a week without throwing something or cursing somebody or stomping around or yelling or screaming, then you need to face the reality that you've got anger problems. And the Bible says, get rid of it. Be slow to anger when God's Word confronts you. Don't argue with it. Submit to it. Understand that a receptive heart opens the ears to God's Word, controls the tongue about speaking about it, and then controls their emotions when the Word rubs them the wrong way. Number four, a receptive heart clears out the smut of sin. Verse 21, look at that with me. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. What is he talking about there? The filthiness are the things in my life. The wickedness are the actions of my life. Because of that, of that filthiness. That term that he uses, putting aside is a term in the Greek that means taking off filthy clothes. Get rid of those things in your life and everything else also and the actions that they cause. You know what? We all bring baggage from our old life to the new life. Sometimes we're familiar with cursing, you know. I worked in the construction industry my whole life until I became a full-time pastor. And I know what it's like. I never was in the oil field, but I was around the oil field in the oil refineries. And the pipe fitters and the welders and the steam fitters, and they all use foul language. And when I became a Christian, I became aware of it. Even though I had lived with it 20 years and spoke it myself, when I became a Christian, I became aware of it. And man, God shut me down quick on that. He said, get that filthy language out of your mouth. Don't let it come out. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. I believe it's in Ephesians 3. So, we want to be sure about that. A receptive heart clears out the smut that's in my life. Remember, I told you it's not effortless. Right? It's not effortless. There's some things and some weeding that I have to do in my life. We all carry that baggage. Words, thoughts, deeds, prejudices. And yet we're unaware of offending God with them. But when we get into the Word, and the Word is imparted to us, then we become aware that we are offending God, and a receptive heart will clean those out, because if you don't, they'll prevent you from growing in Christ. The last thing I want to share with you is this. A receptive heart welcomes the implanted Word. Verse 21 Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Again, I want to take you back to the sower and the seed. The parable, will you, will your heart be a receptive heart where fruit can be produced in your life? That's the goal of God. That should be your goal, that you make your heart receptive to His Word, that it bears fruit for His kingdom. Even good soil needs watering, weeding, and protecting, as I said earlier. 
when he uses the word there, save your souls, he's not talking about salvation. Okay? The word is also used in James chapter 5. Turn there. James 5 verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Same word as we find in James 1, where it says, save your soul. Same word we see in James 5 says, restore. So James is not talking about this word, saving your soul from hell. Okay? Because why? Look at me. This is paper and ink and leather or bonded or hardback, however your Bible is. That's all it is. And Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, He said, you look in here because you think you're going to find eternal life. And He said, it is these scriptures that point to me. And yet you will not come to me to receive that life. So you're not going to find salvation of your soul in the Bible. The Bible points you to the one who can save your soul from hell. Amen. So when he says in John, I mean in James chapter 1, that this uh, which is able to save your souls is able to restore me, to make me well, to extend my life, to save me from death. It's kind of like a person drowning, okay? And when they're really drowning and going under, somebody jumps in to rescue them. It's a fight to get that drowning person to the shore. Because now the drowning person is trying to climb on top of the rescuer because he wants to stay above the water and he, sometimes he pushes the rescuer under the water. It's kind of like that. If you're going to fight God's Word like that, and the way He wants to change your life and make you do what is right and biblical, if you're going to fight Him like that, your life will be ruined. But if you will submit to the Word, just like a drowning person has to submit to the rescuer to safely get them to shore, if you'll submit to God's Word, He will save your life and improve and restore your life. You can trust God's Word. You would trust somebody trying to rescue you, wouldn't you? Well, you can trust God's Word to restore you and to save you as well. He imparted life to you by His Word. He will restore you also by His Word. Verse 21, In humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Watch out over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Today I want you to be sure that you're saved. That's not the question you need to ask yourself. Am I saved? Am I not saved? The question to ask is where's the evidence in my life of the new life? Okay? When I read the Bible and it confronts me in my sin, how do I react to that? Do I make excuses? Do I tear that page out of my Bible? Of course not. You must submit to it. A receptive heart submits to the Word of God and what is true. Are you bored reading your Bible? 
Are you bored reading your Bible? Wow. Today I want you to be quick to hear what it has to say. Are you proud of the things that you know? Be careful and slow to speak. Are you fighting the truth that God puts in your life? Slow to anger. Tolerating smut? What's your favorite TV show? If the preacher come over, would you change the channel? Guess what? Jesus is sitting there watching it with you anyway. You better change it before the preacher comes over. Amen? The preacher is nobody but a sinner saved by grace just like you. Amen. Don't be tempting me if I come to your house watching them shows. <laughs> okay? Yeah, but you understand what I'm saying. Jesus is with you. Don't, don't have to change and jump around and clean something up because somebody shows up at your house that you know is a Christian. It should be the same every day, all day. Amen? Don't tolerate the smut that we have in our lives. Get it out. Put it aside. Are we resisting God? Then we need to receive His Word implanted in our heart. Make sure that you're saved by reviewing the evidence in your life. I'm not telling you that a Christian cannot come to church and then uh, sometime later in their life they, they drift away. Okay? Maybe they were hurt by somebody in the church. Maybe they were hurt by the pastor or a Sunday school teacher. Or maybe something drastic happened in their life and they, they got angry with God. I do know this. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So I know that people can come and go and come back. I'm not refuting that. I'm not trying to get you to feel bad if that's where you're at in your life. But what I want you to understand is this. It's time to come back. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Amen. We're living in, in times in our history of our country, our life, our church that we've never seen before. And we don't really know uh, what lies ahead, but we know who is there waiting on us. So live that life. Be sure about it. Be quick to hear Him, slow to speak, and slow to be angry, and receive God's Word, because it will change your life. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for today and Your message from James. Lord, we all uh, love His book, even though it punches us. It also gives us hope that you still care and that you're still there and that you still want us. And Lord, I pray today that if somebody's here struggling, that you would show them the way uh, out of that struggle. I pray for Jack's family today, if there is any family. I think we were it. I pray, Lord, that you um, help us to reflect on him and think about him. And the next one liking that comes our way, uh, let us all put extra effort out uh, to reach Him and speak to Him and love on Him. And Lord, we, we pray that You honor Yourself in these next few moments and speak to the hearts of the people. In Jesus' name, amen.